everybody, and welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. Michelle, I admit to uh, to an unhealthy addiction to politics. <laughs> uh, that crazy Pennsylvania Republican Senate race has gotten even closer than it was yesterday. Yesterday, with 97% of the vote counted, Dr. Mehmet Oz was leading David McCormick 31.3% to 31.1%. Well, today, with 98% of the vote counted, the difference is now 31.2 to 31.1. They're separated by only 1,100 votes out of 1.5 million votes cast. Um, the, the crazy thing is, it turns out that some votes they realized had been misplaced. Some votes had been credited to Oz, but they were really McCormick votes. Uh, so this is going to take weeks to figure out who won the Republican nomination for the Senate seat. The crazier part of this is that former President Trump yesterday in public urged Oz to just declare himself the winner and say that the vote was being stolen from him. Yes, Sound on familiar? Truth Social. On yes. Everyone's favorite media, That's right. social media platform, yep. So we're just going to have to wait until they literally hand count every, every one single of these votes. Vote. Yeah. Yeah. God, the, the every vote count people are going to be insufferable after this. <laughs> They're right. It's true. But it's, it's true. Right. It is true. Every it is vote true. counts. It is true. The Centers for Disease Control is working with Massachusetts health officials to deal with a confirmed case of the monkeypox. Uh, this disease, it's viral. It's been uh, detected in a man who had just returned from Canada, mm. not known for its, you know, disease spreading filth. Or monkeys. Or monkeys. Wow, disease spreading filth is present in every country, I will say. That's sorry, I have to object to that. Not known for monkeys, I, I will say. So this poor guy is hospitalized in stable condition in, uh, in Massachusetts. Um, I saw pictures today of, of some of the sores that people get with monkeypox. It's disgusting. It's like a really bad case of really big chicken pox mm -hmm. is what it looks like. It's similar to smallpox. It's similar to smallpox, mm -hmm. yes, but spaced out a little more. Monkeypox, I learned today, is difficult to transmit. There are several clusters of it around the world right now, uh, but the, the people suffering from it right now at least, appear to, to almost all be gay men. And CDC scientists aren't sure what to make of that. That's Yeah, because I'm also seeing it's usually contracted from a rodent or small mammal. Yes. But yes, I guess exactly one person, right. you know, you happen to be... You happen to be a gay person who gets this from some, you know, a, right. a mouse in your Airbnb or whatever. Yes. And then that could you be can it. transmit it. Yeah, hmm. Interesting. So they, they don't know. They're starting from scratch. Uh, the CDC is also telling people, and I, re I read the, the press release, telling people not to worry. This is the only confirmed case in the United States and that they're working to figure out how this happened and how to prevent it from spreading. Mm -hmm. I guess we're safe in D.C. because our mammals here aren't small. <laughs> they're not giant small. rats everywhere. If you've ever been to, to Union Station, the train station here in town, after dark, um, there are a hundred times as many rats as there are people. And they are not scared. They're not. 
Yeah, one day they're going to get organized, they're and then, whoo, then we're all in trouble. Yeah, it's not uh, good. In unsurprising news, uh, Peyton Gendron uh, was indicted for first-degree murder. Yeah. This He's still pleading not guilty. Of right. course, uh, he's the man who's alleged to have shot 13 people and killed right. 10 of them in a supermarket in Buffalo. Um, so we'll see. I think that they have pushed back his uh, first hearing. This is his arraignment. They've, the prosecutors have gotten a little bit more time to build their case. It's hard to imagine that it's going to be very difficult. But, you know, I, I can't I'm not imagine. sure what the not guilty plea is based on or if this is just what you, you know, the steps you always go through right. to try and somehow get a more lenient sentence. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit before we take go to our first guest about this really great conversation yeah. on the Radio Warner podcast with Seth Seth Harp, right? Who um has been reporting. We've talked about him on the show before because he's reported a lot on the deaths in, at Fort Bragg. Um, he recently went to Ukraine and was trying to report independently in Ukraine, and so that was what this conversation was about. He also apparently, uh, just in the last couple of days, talked to Aaron Mate right. for his pushback show, mm -hmm. and I think they covered a lot of the same, uh, probably covered a lot of the same ground. But it was fascinating because you just, of course, there is a ton of information in English coming out of Ukraine right now, but you don't really have a lot of people who are trying to do anything independently. Right. Yes. And so to have someone reporting in English who is saying, like, I'm there, I'm trying to move around the country. Right. I'm trying to ask some questions that I don't feel are being asked about Ukrainian casualties, about how the fighting is actually going. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a lot of cases, he wasn't able to get the information that he was he was looking for. Right. He wanted right. to go to hospitals. He wasn't able to go to hospitals. He wanted to get good casualty figures. He couldn't get good casualty figures. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and some of this is because, okay, it's a wartime and, and things have clamped down. Uh, but, you know, the, the, to have your reporting without this context is an issue, right? right? And so right. he it's, points it's it out. It's unfair to the consumers of news. Yeah, yeah. And again, this is not someone, he didn't go over there sympathetic to Russia, right? And quite a few times in this conversation, he said, look, I think that I think this invasion is illegal. I think it's certainly immoral. I have every sympathy with Ukraine uh, trying to defend themselves and also with the their um, quite strict and successful control of information. Right, because which is not really a topic that we hear a lot about here. No, but he said, look, when you are... He he traveled around. He went to some. This is interesting. He went to some towns that Russia had recently left. You know that mm -hmm. had been under Russian control, and then had been uh, you know retaken by Ukraine. But he said, "What what is happening is you go there as a reporter. There are these media centers that are set up for you in Kiev, in Lviv, far from the front line, and you get your lanyard and you go to the media center and you are given information that is all it's all run by the Ministry of Defense." And right. behind the scenes run by the security state. He did say he got to interview a general who had a SBU minder standing right behind him. Oh, my gosh. And one of the questions he asked, because he wanted to ask about the, the presence of U.S. and other European special forces in Ukraine. Um, and he said he asked, he's heard all over about uh, ex-special forces from uh, the U.S., the U.K. and France uh, and he went to ask the general and he said the general was about to respond. And then the SBU guy behind him said, no, no, no. And he just said, oh, no, I can't tell you anything. I will just tell you they are they are very highly trained. But he had also said, and this was interesting. So he said there's it's basically agreed upon that there there are quite a lot of ex-special forces from those three countries on the front lines. 
Um, but also considering you had U.S. Special Forces in Ukraine basically up to the moment of the invasion, mm-hmm. that this line between active duty and X, you know, that's right. Their retirement could be a matter of convenience. Uh, and and he had also said that he had gotten, um, you know, what he felt was quite uh, firm uh, information that U.S. special operators, not former, but current, current. are on the ground in Ukraine, uh, you know, doing what is called operational prep of the battlefield. I do not know what that means. Uh, nor um, do I. But this this is something that we've been hearing for several months now. Yeah, which is being denied. He, he mm-hmm. you know, he was told that, but, you know, and it was also agreed that definitely those ex uh, special forces were there. But he was like, look, one, this is not necessarily an escalation. They're just there doing the things that they were doing before. Mm-hmm. But now this isn't a preparation for an invasion. This is an active war. And what does happen if one of these guys is killed and it becomes public and Russia has killed it, not a not a retired right special forces operator there operate you know they're yeah, out of the goodness of his own one. heart yeah but a current one so that was that was interesting and that's not something that gets a lot of reporting it's not really contextualized that the information that you are getting is coming a hundred percent from the ukraine ministry of defense and again understandable for ukraine to do this mm-hmm. it's the job of a reporter to say here's what i know and here's the context of it instead of here's what I know. And this is the entirety of what is knowable about Ukraine. You know what I mean? Um, He also his point for going there uh, was to look for the International Legion, uh, which got a whole (laughs) bunch of attention early on uh, in the war. The New York Times, if you recall, called Malcolm Nance the face of the International Legion. Yes. It, he, I mean, what this, what Seth Harp discovered was just simply that it, it does not exist. It probably has never existed. And that Malcolm Nance is just, like, m- maybe unwell. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, He's, who knows? But just that, honestly, it is, it is allowing someone to engage in play acting to have him on CNN and on MSNBC yes. dressed in full battle yes. gear talking about how he's a member of a legion that he, he could not find it anywhere. Right. He said he actually went and tried to because Ukraine set up these um, uh, vehicles through which you could apply through their embassies. Right. So sign up and join and come. He said he, he wrote to one of those, did the application for him, never heard anything back. He well, couldn't find anyone who had ever heard anything back. Malcolm Nance did the same. I'm sorry to interrupt sure, you. No, no, Malcolm no. Nance did the same thing, and he was clear about this in an interview that he did with The Guardian, with a friend of his at The Guardian, where he went online, he went to the uh, Ukrainian embassy website here in Washington, D.C. Um, he uh, filled out the form, heard nothing from anybody, called repeatedly, nobody answers the phone there, and he physically drove to the embassy in Georgetown and said, look, I want to join this International Legion. Then he he, uh, uh, gave a a photograph of himself to the New York Times in which he's all decked out in full camouflage with a helmet on and, you know, Nance on his uniform and an American flag, and he's holding an M4, and it has no clip in it. Mm -hmm. There are no bullets in it. Yeah, I mean, so he said there, there are people going to volunteer there, quite a few, just not in any, there's no formal organization. No. People have sort no. of show, not heard anything, shown up at the Polish border, crossed the border, uh, mm-hmm. and gone like hunting around to look for some way to be of service or get a gun in their hands. So, like, it's, <laughs> they're there, but there's no formal organization, mm-hmm. and they're certainly distant from these JSOC guys, right. former or not. Um, yeah, so so that is just crazy. He joked, this is very funny, he joked that uh, 
it's Ukraine is jihad for middle-aged Democrats, which cracks me up in the sense of Malcolm Nance. Um, True. But like, it's not, you know, it's not funny. It's also, it's very sad what's going on there. And he said, you know, uh, he was in Ukraine when uh, whatever went down at Bucha went down. And he said he was able to be there. Uh, he was he was only a few miles away. And his conclusion was something terrible happened in Bucha. It's very unclear what. He, he, you know, he said, look, he, he was an army veteran. He'd served in Iraq. And he was like, look, th- this does sometimes happen in war. Like armies do bad things, right? Uh, soldiers do bad things. And so he said, I don't have any doubt that something awful happened there. But it is also true that you, Ukrainian forces were in control of the town for a, a day, maybe two days before anyone was allowed to visit. And then the way you would visit is you would sign up for a space in a police van and you would be driven, a group of reporters, driven through on a guided tour led by a Ukrainian police officer, probably an Azov uh, member. And they would take you and say, here's an, here you can see a body lying in the street. So, you know, just said it's a it's a very odd situation. And it is also odd that it's the oddness is not being reported. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's all going. This is none yeah. of this is sort of well, apo- an ap- apology, but it's the role of the press to actually try to figure out what happened and not cheerlead. The and first he, casualty of war is the truth. Yes. And he said, you know, I went to other towns where Russians had withdrawn. And I said, what happened? Did people here? Did he, people here bother you? Did they did they injure civilians? And they said, no, they you know, they hung out in the woods. Uh, and uh, and then, you know, then they were gone, which, you know, is is what should happen. Right. right? right. And that shouldn't be news. Yes. It shouldn't be news. Soldiers not killing civilians because right. they shouldn't do it. So it's not like gold star for you that you didn't rape 15 teenagers Mm -hmm. or whatever. But it's just what he said is like, all that you get is this sort of maximalist account that what what is happening in Ukraine is a Russian army bent on uh, genocide and, and chaos for the sake of chaos and pain for the for the sake of pain. And what happens if you just report on this as a, a war that is as horrible as any other war? Mm-hmm. But not necessarily mm-hmm. this this story, which isn't the truth, which is, you know what I mean? It's not yes. to say that the truth isn't also terrible. And he was saying, I'm not trying to imply that there was some dark conspiracy, but that the whole this whole story is more complicated than the way it is being reported. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so it was fascinating. He he interviewed the founder of the Azov Battalion, uh, went down there to talk to him in a, at a base down near Mariupol, talked about the uh, increasing influence and popularity of Azov. Wow. Uh, especially since, because they're, uh, you know, they're generally known to be like the the best fighters, right? And so now they're sort of her- heroes of Ukraine and they're getting more, you know, pe- people are, I don't know, appre- I guess appreciating their role in the fighting, but they are also still, they, it's like the base I went to interview him had white power spray painted on the outside and there's, you know, wolf sangle flags and everything right. all over the place. There's no pretense about, you know, they're not trying to whitewash their image. Right. They're just sort of saying, yeah, but we're not trying to invade anybody. We're defending our territory. So yeah. who and, cares if and, we're and a white supremacist? there's no pressure from the likes of the United States for them to try to whitewash their image. No, no. We don't, we don't care, apparently, that they're Nazis. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, it, was, it was a very interesting report, and it was what, you know, sounded like sort of a yeah, clear-headed and, and genuinely curious reporting in in English, right? Which he also said, you know, the the way the Western press, generally speaking, 
uh, acts in press conferences with Zelensky, the questions they ask are really embarrassing. It's sort of all like, how many weapons do you need? Uh, are you getting the weapons you need? What's going to happen if you don't get $40 billion worth of, of weaponry tomorrow? He said the Ukrainian press are much, much better, such as such as our left right after Zelensky's crackdown of the last couple of years. But he said, you know, it's it, the Chinese uh, representative from a Chinese uh, media outlet was asking more interesting, more reasonable questions. The Ukrainians were asking Zelensky, you know, in, incisive questions about like power structures and, and you know, who is actually sort of pulling the strings behind the scenes. And the Americans seem to be only interested in uh, when's, you know, when's the next batch of weapons coming and how can we make it bigger? So, yeah, so I highly recommend it. And it was, uh, you know, it was nice to hear. It's just a shame. It's a shame that there is so little reporting that actually puts this in context. I'll and say. that even you know, attempting to contextualize the war is treated as though it's an apology for mm-hmm. one actor, which right. it isn't. It's not. It's just how do you how do you resolve something That's right. if you can't talk about it truthfully? That is exactly right. Yes, indeed. Well, I think our next guest or our first guest yeah. is uh, ready for us. Yeah. Let's take a quick break and come back. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking a little bit about Finland, Sweden, Turkey and the expansion or not of NATO. We're going to talk about what kind of discussion we maybe should be having about this topic that we're not having. And then we're going to talk about uh, CPAC in Hungary and whether it actually is dangerous to have the American social and cultural conservative movement uh, aligning itself with with one in Eastern Europe or, you know, if this is just sort of what CPAC does every once in a while. (laughs) Joining us for this conversation is Dr. Kenneth Surin. He's a political and foreign affairs analyst, and he's also Professor Emeritus of Literature and Professor of Religion and Critical Theory at Duke University. Dr. Surin, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Let's talk about Finland, Sweden, Turkey, and Joe Biden. Uh, The leaders of Finland and Sweden are are in the U.S. today for a very quick visit about their NATO applications, because I'm pretty sure Joe Biden is leaving for uh, South Korea and Japan tonight. So honestly, why they would come all the way to Washington for this, what has to be a pretty symbolic meeting when the holdup is in Ankara is sort of perplexing to me. But they are here and both Biden and National Security Advisor Jay Sullivan have said they think Turkey's concerns can be addressed and that there will be a path forward for these two Scandinavian countries to join NATO. I don't know. Earlier this week, it seems like Turkey was saying look, uh, we have some requests that we want if these additions are going to be made. Now Turkey is kind of posturing like it is just going to flat out block the accession that it's not bargaining. And so I, I wonder what you expect to see happen here in the in the near term, Dr. Surin. Um, well, I think there are two issues here. Uh, the first, obviously, is um, Sweden and, and, and Finland are going to get Biden uh, to lean on uh, uh, Turkey. Uh, But also, I think, 
um, Turkey uh, likes uh, to replenish its arsenal from time to time. And I think that Sweden and Finland will be asking Biden to uh, give Turkey something in the way of weapons, uh, etc., etc. Um, he needs uh, some carrots uh, and not just a stick from Biden. I think the second concern that we have is the timeline. Uh, if Turkey um, extends its recalcitrance uh, over the membership, then obviously, since all members of NATO have to agree to allow a country uh, to belong to NATO, um, the question of a timeline becomes important. Um, will it take three months, six months, a year, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? And then obviously events on the ground in Ukraine uh, will affect that timeline. Mm -hmm. So uh, the timeline could also be another subject for discussion uh, in the White House. Mm -hmm. uh, beyond that, um, who knows what's what's going to go on? So you think this is going to be uh, Joe Biden sort of opening up new weapon sales to Turkey? Well, I mean that's 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 one possibility. There could be other forms of aid to to Turkey. Mm -hmm. um, it really depends on how urgent the administration in. D.C. sees the need to expand NATO at this point. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the impetus for this is coming from Sweden and Finland, um, but really the hegemon within the NATO structure is the U.S. So I think Biden will call the shots here. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, he will make that clear, I hope. Um, to Sweden and Finland. Mm -hmm. May I may I sure. ask a, a follow up question here, Doctor Doctor Cern? I wanted to ask how serious you think Erdogan is about pushing, particularly Sweden, to extradite Turkish Kurds who have become Swedish citizens or who have been granted asylum in Sweden, uh, whom Erdogan accuses of being. Gulenists or PKK sympathizers. Is he serious about wanting people like that back to punish them? Or is this just something he threw out there uh, to, to let the West mull over? I think uh, the second scenario that you depict, that um, he's thrown it out there uh, and really wants... Um, uh, Western attention to that issue. How far he'll get, uh, I think most commentators that I've read on this issue uh, seem to say uh, he's whistling in the wind. Mm -hmm. uh, Sweden is not going to extradite its citizens to, uh, um, to Turkey. Uh, and also, you know, I think... Uh, he must be aware of this because he's a savvy operator. Kurdish refugees are not simply uh, located in um, in Scandinavia. There's a substantial refugee uh, community in and around Paris. Uh, uh, there are also Kurds 
um, in Germany. So basically, what Germany and France will say to Sweden, look, um, don't, don't open the floodgates on this. Um, because if you do, Erdogan is not going to be satisfied with having uh, Kurdish refugees in Sweden reintegrated mm-hmm. with Turkey. Uh, he's going to come for Turkish refugees uh, all over Europe. So I think this is a non-starter. It's, mm-hmm. it's simply Erdogan thinking that uh, uh, he can flex uh, a, a few muscles on this issue um, with regard to uh, the West and NATO. Or maybe ask for something that can't be fulfilled in order to avoid, you know, just straight out saying, yeah, OK, I'll let them in if you give me some F-35s or something is a little bit less seemly than, oh, I have political concerns, you know. Uh, and I think if that's the case, maybe that is why we haven't seen any stories. I haven't seen any stories in the English language press of any responses from, you know, Kurdish governments anywhere, no. you know, or Kurdish people, no. Kurdish political Not leaders, word. nothing. Not and so, yeah, it was if people think this could possibly be serious, you know, I, I, I was wondering if this is just we've gotten so used to using Kurds as a sort of bargaining chip or a tool right to our ends. And we've forgotten to even pay lip service to how they might feel about uh, these requests. Well, yes, this is a very complicated issue because, as you know, um, Kurdistan, that's the hypothetical uh, Kurdistan, um, is a nation without a state. And it straddles several countries, not just Turkey. Um, there are Kurdish populations in Syria and, of course, in Iraq. Um, so uh, if Erdogan is asking for the extradition of Kurds, uh, who are located within Turkish uh, territorial boundaries, um, then the question will arise inevitably uh, what is going to happen to Kurds in Syria, uh, Iran, and Iraq. Um, I'm pretty certain that the uh, unofficial representatives, because you know it's not a state, so the representatives are de facto unofficial, uh, are, are going to say, well, look, this this really has to be a non-starter. Uh, if we start um, repatriating uh, to, uh, Kurdish refugees um, from the Turkish. Uh, sorry, uh, Kurdish refugees from the Turkish part of what is going to be a future Kurdistan, um, that will place in abeyance the uh, Turkish refugees, uh, and there are some, um, from Syria, uh, Iran, and Iraq. So I think the representatives of the hypothetical Kurdistan are just going to put their... um, uh, their collective feet down uh, with regard to Sweden uh, and other European countries that house Turkish refuge- uh, Kurdish refugees. The other question I had about this, and I, I was very surprised to see this in CNN, of all places, uh, is a, a question about the speed uh, of these developments, right? So this is White House reporter Stephen Collinson. He's writing that the most striking aspect of Sweden and Finland's application to join NATO is how little debate there is about whether it's a wise idea. 
And so he raises Good the point. case that I mean, I feel like it was it sort of was mentioned when it first came up. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Hey, that create a pretty long direct border between NATO and Russia. OK, sort of moving along. Right. But he says, hey, stop. This would be a very significant geopolitical shift. It would create hundreds of miles of direct border between NATO and Russia at a period of great tension. It could pave the way for a new era of brinkmanship in Europe. And no one has explained to Americans why they should now defend what he says, vast tracts of new NATO territory in Europe and notes that this is a significant omission given hostility to NATO among supporters of former President Donald Trump, who might end up back in the White House. I mean, who knows if any of this will happen? And Collinson concludes at the end of his opinion piece that the benefits probably still outweigh the risks, but that such a change is taking place without much public debate about the consequences doesn't really lend much credit to the democracies that NATO was set up to defend, which is pretty strong language for CNN. And so I wonder if you think we should be concerned about the lack of public debate, you know, not necessarily just about this process, but it seems about so many foreign policy decisions. You know, I I think he's correct that our leadership don't really seem to feel like they need to make the case for any decisions anymore. I don't see Joe Biden coming out very much and saying, here's why we need to send another 40 billion. And remember, this is supposed to be the foreign policy president. Yeah. So I I wonder what you make of this lack of debate, Dr. Surin, and and, uh, whether it sort of speaks to something like a a greater rot, I guess, in in our own processes. Well, um, you know, I'm a Brit. Uh, who's, although I've been here for uh, 35 years, I've not become an American citizen. And so I can say uh, quite openly that it's a source of constant amazement to me just how little interest there is in the body politic and the general public, just how little interest there is in foreign affairs. In- mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, you can put this, uh, you can state this at a cartoon sketch level. Uh, how many Americans can find Canada or Mexico on an app, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So that's the wider context for this. And of course, it provides encouragement to uh, politicians, even one purporting to be the foreign affairs uh, president, um, to basically not take seriously the need to uh, hash things out with um, the wider public. Uh, You know, there is obviously um, a foreign policy uh, framework of institutions, etc., in and around Washington, um, and these... These policy wonks are left to hash it out amongst themselves with the public paying little or no attention um, to what is going on. And this just encourages politicians, I think, to be lackadaisical uh, in addressing matters of huge import. I mean, as you point out, having a NATO border uh, completely... Russia is a matter of serious import. Um, Collison, I think, is is absolutely right. Um, There's probably more discussion about this going on in um, Finland and Sweden in the media and in the body politic than there is in this country. Um, And I know because... uh, 
my uh, key interest is in the German and the French press, uh, that there is a much greater discussion going on in their quality newspapers uh, about this than there is in this country. Yeah, and it's especially outrageous right now because it's the U.S. I mean, I don't... I do not think that the U.S. federal government sort of operates on a we're going to take a dollar from social spending and give it to the Defense Department. Right. I don't think that it that it works that way. And I think it's dishonest to try to suggest that it does work that way. But to the extent that it's an excuse offered by politicians as to why domestically we can't have better, better support and better services, and also to the extent that it continues to warp our economy Right. So that so much money just goes, you know, into defense spending and into the biggest uh, defense contractors. It is the American people who will be quite literally paying for this. And I think that that is also just really unacknowledged, you know, and even now we're, you know, to the extent that our sanctions on Russia are playing a role in sort of exacerbating uh, existing economic problems. You know, we are paying for it. And they just act like we don't even deserve an explanation mm-hmm. or any kind of mm-hmm. voice as to as to, you know, whether it should happen. And I don't know how you I don't know how you turn this around other than maybe uh, the street protests, Dr. Cern. Uh, I don't think there will be street protests. No, because now I think uh, the activist element um, in the body politic are much more concerned about the overturning of Roe v. Uh, Wade. Um, as for uh, Ukraine, um, I think in terms of the public consciousness, it's somewhat on the back burner. Um, and people are losing interest in Ukraine, I think. Um, simply, you know, talking to people in my local cafes, etc., etc., um, as the situation there gravitates towards a stalemate, um, interest is starting to drop. And um, so I don't think there will be too much pressure on politicians in this country, uh, one way or the other, when it comes to giving arms or aid or whatever um, to, to Ukraine. Now, there's a, an element of smoke and mirrors in, in some of this. Um, I mean, Erdogan's uh, intransigence with regard to Finland and Sweden is well publicized. But what is not so well publicized is the fact that he is also supplying Ukraine with drones. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So he's, um, you know, he's playing both sides. Um and of course, there's an element of subterfuge uh, uh, and smoke and mirrors uh, in uh, Erdogan, on Erdogan's behalf because he's a wily operator. Um, and I think there's an element of smoke and mirrors that's going on in the West uh, as well. We, we know, for example, that Boris Johnson has been extremely gung-ho about imposing sanctions on Russia. What is less well known is that he's not closed a very significant loophole which has allowed uh, Russian uh, fossil fuels to enter the UK. And so what's this loophole? The loophole is that sanctions are only uh, imposed on 
fossil fuels that leave Russia from Russian ports. So what happened, and it is happening, is that Putin is selling fossil fuels to third parties who are not Russian, who then uh, export the fossil fuels from Baltic ports that are non-Russian. And then, of course, they then have complete carte blanche uh, for entering the UK. So uh, imports of what is basically uh, Russian fossil fuel uh, are streaming into the UK uh, under the auspices uh, of third-party arrangements uh, and have zero impact on the Russian economy. And Boris Johnson knows this, but he's not going to do anything about it because inflation is at a record level in the UK, um, sparked uh, in large part not just by Brexit, but also by uh, the fact that uh, the UK is undergoing something of an energy crisis uh, Utilities in the UK have been entirely privatized by the Tories. Uh, they have been inefficiently run, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So energy prices are going up as a result of that. And Boris Johnson can't afford to jack them up even higher mm-hmm. by having a complete uh, blockade of uh, incoming fuel from Russia. So he allows this loophole to exist. And I think this is going on at, at all levels in Western Europe. Germany, for example, has uh, said that it will give Ukraine uh, some tanks uh, that it has. These are old and out of date, and Germany doesn't even produce the shells that are needed to weaponize these tanks. Uh, A German friend of mine who was an ambassador in the EU um, told me in an email this morning uh, that these munitions, uh, tank munitions, are made in Poland. So saying that we are going to send 100 Panzer tanks to the Ukraine is a meaningless gesture unless they are equipped with the shells that are needed to weaponize them. All the European countries that belong to NATO uh, are engaged more or less uh, to some degree, um, in such uh, smoke screening. I want to shift gears here, Dr. Saran, while we have you for a couple more minutes, and just talk about CPAC and uh, the Conservative Political Action Conference having uh, its annual event in Hungary this year, or like a special version of its, its annual event. Uh, This is the first time the conference has been held in Europe and much is being made of the role of replacement theory, right? This idea that uh, white populations are being deliberately replaced by immigrants or of some people like to tweak it. It's just white voters (laughs) who are being replaced by immigrant voters to vote Democrats. Um, But this has been, you know, uh, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban does not sort of shy away from this in his rhetoric. It appeared in the writings of the Buffalo shooter and it appears in in far-right discourse. Uh, CPAC says Hungary represents conservative Christian values. Uh, Hungary is something of a sort of uh, bugbear, right? Liberal bugbear. But also Orban is, you know, legitimately uh, pretty distasteful. And I just wonder if there if there is something especially dangerous about linking American social and cultural conservatism with the Eastern European flavor, or, you know, is this just CPAC doing its thing. It's had conferences in Australia before. It's had conferences in Brazil before. Uh, Should we read any more into this than those? 
Well, I think I share your skepticism on this matter. This is largely symbolics. Um, I don't think um, many uh, of the people who endorse uh, replacement theory in this country, uh, or, or at least endorse the idea of it, because uh, I think when push comes to shove, uh, very few uh, lay persons will be able to give you the nuts and bolts, uh, even at a general level, of what theory purports to be. So... Um, I think this is largely symbolic. I mean, how many CPAC members uh, could locate Hungary on a map? <laughs> um, so it's, it's a symbolic gesture. And, you know, Orban will welcome this because obviously it allows him to play on a wider stage. But, you know, he, he has to look over his shoulder at Brussels. Um, and he keeps thumbing his nose at Brussels. Uh, he's hobbled his judiciary completely. And if he takes more steps in that authoritarian gesture, it is those steps that he takes uh, within uh, Hungary uh, that will affect its ties with Brussels. It is those steps, I think, that will be of more concern, uh, more concern to uh, people in the wider European context. Meeting with CPAC, uh, I think it's just um, it's just a gesture. Yeah, I, th I think so, too. I mean, I think, yeah, I, I think it's a shame that people like Orban get to, you know, be the ones to offer these sort of popular things like uh, housing grants or whatever. I mean, for the wrong reasons. But man, imagine, imagine if we were, you know, if the left was doing things that were sort of populist and popular. Yes. Yeah, uh, we'll have to leave that discussion for another day. We're out of time here. That was Dr. Kenneth Surin. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. CNN reported this morning that the White House is currently engaged in talks with the Saudi government to schedule a meeting between President Biden and Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. This would be the first meeting between the two and could take place as early as next month. Biden vowed during the 2020 campaign to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state, those were his words, following its brutal murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was lured into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, murdered, dismembered, and disposed of. The murder was ordered by Mohammed bin Salman. A former U.S. official who's aware of the negotiations says the meeting is, quote, when, not if, unquote, and will likely happen during a June meeting of the Gulf Cooperation Council that will be held in Riyadh. Meanwhile, the European Union and Iran are awaiting a U.S. reply to their positions on restarting the JCPOA, or Iran nuclear deal. The EU's senior negotiator, Enrique Mora, is in Tehran right now for discussions there, and it seems that the EU and Iranian positions are identical. The ball is now in the U.S.'s court. We're joined by Dr. Mohamed Mirandi. He's a professor of English literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran. Welcome back, Mohamed. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. So happy to have you. Mohammed. I have to tell you, I had to laugh at the CNN uh, article this morning, which said that a meeting like this should be considered routine, but that Biden and Mohammed bin Salman don't get along because Biden has been, quote, highly critical of Saudi human rights abuses and its war in Yemen, unquote. But that's just simply not true, is it? Biden has been highly critical of Khashoggi's murder but the U.S. still actively supports the war in Yemen. What do you think about all this? Yes, the United States and its allies, the British, uh, the Canadians, the uh, French, the Germans, all of them have been supporting Saudi Arabia in Yemen for the last few years, uh, both during the Obama years, during the Trump years, and of course, during the uh, Biden presidency, there's been a consistency in that policy. So uh, whatever genocide has been committed in Yemen is the blood is on Biden's hands just as much as anyone else. The issue of Jamal Khashoggi, of course, because it was linked to the Washington Post, because Mm -hmm. Jamal Khashoggi was uh, closely linked to the uh, establishment and the democratic establishment in the United States, Uh, That caused Biden to uh, make those uh, hostile comments about Mohammed bin Salman in particular, but he never said anything about the the Saud family. No, uh, no, no. You're exactly right. But I think this change in policy, or at least Biden's change in policy, is closely linked to the fact that the United States is on the decline. In the past, the United States would never have this sort of difficulty dealing with countries like Saudi Arabia or the Emirates or, or anyone else for that matter in, in the Persian Gulf region or in the Arab world. Mm-hmm. But the fact that uh, even the Emiratis, as a very small country, uh, have been able to say no to the United States over the last few months shows that the U.S., influence and power is nowhere as significant as it was in decades past. Mohammed, what do you think we should expect uh, Joe Biden to want to accomplish when he meets MBS? Is this just about oil production? Biden clearly wants to ease the oil shortage because of the drop in Russian oil production. Uh, He needs the Saudis to do something for us. Now, in my view, this would be embarrassing and, and perhaps politically damaging for Biden at home to go to Saudi Arabia and to look weak. Uh, but is this meeting really just about oil? I think a lot of it does have to do with oil. They want the Saudis to help them to uh, bring down the price of oil because of the current state of the economy and also in order to weaken the the Russian hand. The Saudis, on the other hand, they have have spent hundreds of billions of dollars in the war in Yemen, Mm -hmm. and uh, they have nowhere near the sort of assets that they had a decade ago. So um, if the Saudis are willing to make that sacrifice for the United States, it will come at a heavy cost for the country. So will the Americans be able to convince the Saudis or threaten the Saudis into shifting uh, or changing 
or increasing the amount of oil they produce or not, that remains to be seen. But um, it's also, I think, more than just Russia. The Americans are increasingly concerned about the rise of China and uh, the relationship or the growing relationship between uh, countries in the Persian Gulf and, and the Chinese. And so the Americans, I would assume, would want to make sure that these Arab family uh, dictatorships are uh, are they are going to remain in the American camp in the, for the foreseeable future. And I, I, I find it rather stunning <clears throat> that the Americans uh, are uh, so have been so short-sighted in the past, in that while the Americans are investing so much in anti-Russian uh, policies, uh, the United States is effectively weakening itself and its European partners, especially its European partners, at a time when the Chinese are definitely continuing to build their country. Mohammed, tell us a little bit about the Iranian position on JCPOA negotiations. The next deadline is June 6th, when the deal between Iran and the International Atomic Energy Agency is scheduled to end. Also, there's an IAEA board meeting on that same day. Expectations, you'll remember, were high at the end of last year that there would be a deal and that the U.S. would re-enter the JCPOA, but that never happened. And well, Michelle and I were talking about this earlier today. You go through the U.S. media and there is literally nothing about negotiations with Iran, about the U.S. reentering the JCPOA, not even just surface discussion of the issue. Uh, do you see any cause for optimism? Do you see any way that the U.S. is going to uh, uh, reenter this thing? I really don't know. Uh, the United States is... <clears throat> moving closer towards elections, and those who oppose the deal in the United States <clears throat> are continuing to put pressure on uh, the Biden uh, team, and so that, uh, that prevents a deal. On the other hand, the longer the war in Ukraine continues, <clears throat> the more difficult it is for Western economies uh, and especially with the high price of oil and energy and the potential for instability in the region, in our region, in West Asia, at a time when there's a war going on in Ukraine, all that <clears throat> creates an incentive for a deal. So you have these two forces that are basically pushing in opposite directions. Um, um, and we have to see which one uh, gains the upper hand, which, which, which one uh, is the it may, brings about the final outcome mm -hmm. in U.S. policy towards the JCPOA. But um, what I what I can say is that uh, the Europe, EU representative who came to Iran on his way back, when he and his uh, colleagues were in uh, in Europe in Germany, uh, they were held and um, kept apart in their cell phones. Or at least I know that Mr. Mora's cell phone was confiscated. So I don't know what that was all about. Jeez. And some in Iran believe that this was Israeli um, influenced, Israeli influenced 
this act mm-hmm. by, uh, I would assume, German intelligence. I don't know what the story is, but it's something that you haven't seen. Uh, I, people don't see in the, in the media, but it's very extraordinary that such a high-ranking European Union official would be treated as such a diplomat yeah. Yeah. at a European airport. <clears throat> Shocking, to tell you the truth. Uh, when I look for news about the JCPOA, I find a lot about talks between Iran and the IAEA and between Iran and the European Union. But I find literally no mention, Mohammed, of the U.S. engaging with anybody, whether it's the Iranians, the IAEA or the European Union. Um what are the U.S. sticking points in these negotiations? Why, why haven't we seen any, any progress? I mean, uh, here I am asking an Iranian citizen to update me on U.S. policy because my own government is just not reporting this information to the media. Well, I really don't know why the United States is so quiet. I, I assume they just want to remain quiet because they want everything to remain focused on Ukraine. But if you remember how during the negotiations, the Americans and the Europeans were constantly making threats and giving date deadlines and saying that beyond a certain date, negotiations are useless because the Iranian nuclear program will have passed a certain red line. <clears throat> well, that's all gone. And the Iranian nuclear program continues to <clears throat> make progress. Uh, R&D takes place, more advanced um, uh, facilities are being developed and installed, and uh, the Americans don't seem to have a, a problem with that. So it sort of shows the hypocritical attitude of uh, U.S. policymakers when it comes to Iran, constantly saying how the Iranian nuclear program is an, is an imminent threat, yet uh, then suddenly they leave the table and they go quiet. Right. So um, that that is an interesting point. But uh, the sticking points continue to be what they were, and that is that the assurances that the Iranians want, in case Biden leaves the deal, uh, <clears throat> the Iranians are saying that those foreign companies, those individuals, those entities who invest in Iran during the U.S. Uh, return or, or during the uh, uh, implementation of the deal— uh, what will happen to them if the U.S. pulls out again? And the U.S. hasn't given those those necessary assurances. And the Iranians are saying if the Americans don't give assurances for those investors who invest while the U.S. is a part of the deal, then um, it really is meaningless because everyone will be afraid of uh, investing if they feel that as soon as the U.S. pulls out, then they will be sanctioned. So they'll you know they 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 may want to invest a, a large amount of money to, ex- to uh, expand an oil field. And then after a few months, they may bring in hundreds of millions of dollars worth of assets. And then suddenly Biden pulls out. And then, then what happens? Are they sanctioned? Do they lose all of that wealth? Uh, the Iranians are saying this has to be sorted out. And the Americans refuse to give the sort of assurances that would be required for investors to be assured. So the Iranians are saying if we're going to have a deal that works, then this has to be resolved. And there's also the sanctions list. There's also, in addition to that, the issue of the uh, guards being declared by the United States under Trump. 
as a terrorist organization. There are, there are a number of different issues, but I think the most important issue is the issue of assurances in case Biden leaves the deal as Trump did before him. Yeah, I think that's probably a, a real uh, fear. And it's no wonder that we don't have a deal right now. We're going to have to leave it there. We were very happy to be joined from Tehran by Dr. Mohammed Morandi. He's a professor of English literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. It's the top of the hour. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. New York Governor Kathy Hochul announced yesterday that the New York Police Department would create a new domestic terrorism unit to combat attacks like the one seen last week in Buffalo. Hochul's announcement is part of a huge new program to combat domestic terrorism, to toughen New York's gun laws, and to crack down on social media platforms that promote extremist acts of violence. In other news, the Israeli government announced that it would not investigate the death of famed Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akla, who was shot by Israeli troops in cold blood last week. Israeli police also attacked mourners at her funeral, causing pallbearers to drop her casket. The Israeli government said that they had been assured that Abu Akla was killed by accident. In the trial of former Clinton campaign attorney Michael Sussman, the judge overseeing the proceedings, said yesterday that he is not inclined to declare a mistrial after defense attorneys said Sussman's rights were violated. We'll talk about that. And in a strange bit of news, six former players for the Philadelphia Phillies baseball team have died of brain cancer, something that the Centers for Disease Control calls a significant cluster. This is four times the rate of brain cancer for the general public. We're joined by Dan Kovalik. Dan's a labor attorney, human rights activist, and author, and his latest book is called Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. Welcome back, Dan. Thanks for having me. I always enjoy having you. Uh, let's start with this new NYPD domestic terrorism unit. The NYPD has had a terrorism unit since the 1990s. I know for a fact, right? Uh, it's, it's generally been focused on Muslim radicals or just normal just Muslims, Muslims. <laughs> yes. right? Anybody who goes to a mosque. Yeah. Um, why do they need a, a separate domestic terrorism unit? This just seems like a power grab to me or, or a, a try for a bigger budget. What do you make of it? Well, it certainly could be that. I mean, but of course you always have to fear that they're using, you know, the excuse of this terrible crime, of course, terrible that, that was carried out in Buffalo uh, in order to increase, you know, police powers. And, and of course, that's right. One always has to be concerned about that, um, you know, especially when they're talking about shutting down social media uh, posts. Um, now, of course, we know that there are some groups that use social media to promote hate, to promote violence. Sure. And that needs to be deal dealt with. But of course, a lot of the 
you know, um, the claims against, you know, various sites aren't about that, but about the fact that they don't like the content of their political views, for example, because they have another view of what's happening in Ukraine than the, um, you know, main narrative. It's it's those people that tend to be shut down. And of course, the irony of ironies of all this are, in my view, is that the guy that carried out the killings in Buffalo apparently uh, was wearing the symbol of the Azov Battalion yes. in Ukraine and right. was possibly inspired by the Azov Battalion in Ukraine, which, of course, is being applauded by the Western media, right? The Washington Post just had a huge uh, uh, story that was glorifying the Azov unit. Should they be shut down? I mean – Let's you know talk about the elephant in the room that that these neo Nazis in the Ukraine are being uh, you know applauded by mainstream press, and so you know maybe we should talk about that instead of creating more terrorist units. That's a good point. It's a good point. Governor Hochul said that she wants to hold media platforms that live stream domestic terror attacks to account, um, and of course she's. Referring to Twitch, which uh, the Buffalo killer used to live stream his attack. Now, interestingly enough, 22 people were watching it as it was going down and Twitch uh, deleted it as quickly as they realized, you know, that he was doing it. But you can go back through Time Machine on the Internet and you can find something that's been taken down or deleted. And now millions of people have seen this attack. Um, this certainly wasn't. Twitch's fault. They're not mind readers to say I'm having a premonition that somebody's going to use Twitch to, you know, film an attack. Is it even possible, Dan, to hold companies like Twitch responsible for the actions of their users? Or is this just a non-starter? Yeah, again, I think you make a great point. I mean, they did what any human could do within their capacity. Um, people are going to do crazy things on social media. Uh, I suppose maybe you could put a delay in there like TV has. I don't know. I don't know how the technology would work. Um, and again, you know, I certainly sympathize with the idea of not letting people post their violent sure. crimes sure. Uh, on any platform. Um, and I suppose uh, the platforms at least, you know, there needs to be some regulation to force them to try to stop that. And I guess Twitch probably did the best they could. Yeah, I think they probably did. I'm not really sure what else they, they could do. I, I want to ask about uh, Shireen Abu Akla. You know, I, I don't know why this terrible incident has affected me more than other similar terrible incidents. But, but I, I'm, really, I'm really upset about this. Uh, the way the Israeli government has responded to, uh, to this murder. There, there have been eyewitness accounts, including... That of her producer who was shot in the same attack, she and the producer were were just walking down the street when um, a group of Israeli soldiers uh, walked past them. For whatever reason, one of the Israeli soldiers shot her in the face and killed her. And the producer turned to run and the soldier shot him in the back. This was just a cold blooded, unprovoked murder of a woman who was wearing a, 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 a what do you call it? A she had a, press, like a, media. Yeah, she had like a bulletproof vest on a with press vest and like on. eight yeah. inch letters across her chest. Right. Yeah, press. Yeah. 
and they murdered her anyway. The Israelis now uh, are saying that there will not even be an investigation and that they believe the soldier's excuse that this killing was an accident. Um, do you see any scenario at all where there's justice in this case? Is there anything that anybody can do or do they just get away with it again? Well, I mean, obviously, if there were true justice in the world, you you know, one could maybe uh, ask the International Criminal Court to investigate it um, or another international human rights body. I think mm. it would justify that given this is not the first journalist. Uh, in fact, there's been scores of journalists killed by the Israeli Defense Forces over the years. Um I think this would warrant such an investigation. Do I think that's going to happen? Sadly, no. Um, you know, and of course, we have to remember the at first Israel tried to blame the Palestinians right. for the murder. Yeah. You remember that, right? And now, now they're obviously admitting they did it, but they claim it was an accident. When, as you say, she clearly marked herself as a press person, and moreover, she's very famous. She's probably she well known to the soldiers. This was an assassination, it mm -hmm. seems like to me. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, the other thing that should happen is that the U.S. Congress should, you know, examine aid to Israel, especially military aid in light of this. Um, and that's something Americans should push. I mean, really, that is something we need to continue to ask that Congress end that type of aid to Israel over these types of incidents. And Again, do I think that's going to happen in the near term? No, but it's certainly something worth fighting for. I was talking to an Israeli journalist a couple of weeks ago, and uh, quite a prominent Israeli journalist, and he was telling me that um, that he had tricked himself into into thinking that that nobody could be as bad as Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh. And even though the Israeli government has moved solidly to the right, uh, over the last 20 years, that Naftali Bennett is actually worse than than Netanyahu. And he said it's because Bennett is um, is not as intelligent as Netanyahu is, yet he is as radically right wing or reactionarily as right wing. Um, would you agree with that, Dan? Are you seeing any differences policy wise at all between Naftali Bennett and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu? No, I don't, you know, uh, but I don't necessarily write it down to, to you know, the attributes of, of the two different people. I mean, the truth is that Israel as a country has become much more right wing over much, the years. Much you know? more we've, right wing. Yep. We've seen that happen. You know, there used to be a tradition of, you know, socialist Zionism, yes. labor Zionism, the kibbutzes, which were run on a socialist basis. And one could criticize those things or whatever. But there was a left wing, strong left wing current in Israel. And that's largely gone. Right. Yes. Um, in part because the left particularly after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, was weakened throughout the world. But also because I think over time, you know, the left wing and progressive people simply left Israel disgusted by what was happening and have kind of ceded it to the right wing, mm -hmm. right? And so you really do have a population that's much more right wing in Israel. And I think therefore – yeah, a population much more tolerant of bad things being done by their leaders. And I think that's what you're saying.
Yeah, you know, he said another thing, too, that's very similar to what you just said. He said he called it actually the Russianization of Israel, that there's been such massive immigration from Russia and Ukraine to Israel that that the ethnic Russian Israelis have just sort of taken over politics. And he said by their nature, they're conservatives and um, conservatives and Zionists. And that the country just can never go back to that socialist, um, those socialist roots that they had, right? There's not going to be another gold of my ear. Uh, the, the period where when you turned 18 and before you were drafted into the military, you went to a kibbutz for the common good. Those days are gone and they're not coming back. And I think that's I think that's what Dan just said as well. I might quibble with the by their name. There's been a lot of like, uh, these people are like this by their nature. Or these people are like this by their nature, but certainly have brought a certain sort of political uh, culture with them. Yeah. But not that, I don't know. I, sometimes it's just like, uh, you know, like politics are a choice, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that goes into it, but like, I don't True. know that you're born, yeah. born a right winger. A conservative, you can yeah. grow, you know, and have that, have those uh, views like reinforced throughout your life and, and agree with them and accept them and then carry them with you wherever you sure. go. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Hey, let's talk about Michael Sussman's trial. Uh, Sussman's attorneys. Well, you know what? I'm going to preface this with something. Okay. I've tried hard to take an interest in this trial. Mm -hmm. And this thing is so boring. It's just got so many, ah, so many dumb little threads. (laughs) Not dumb, but just like, it's just like, I have to remember this guy's name. And then you have to remember this guy's name. Yes. Yeah. And and the whole scandal from yesterday, the reason why they're asking for a mistrial is um, one of Sussman's partners was up on the stand and the prosecutor said, well, what was Sussman's reaction to X, Y, and Z? And he said, you'd have to ask Sussman that. And so the prosecutor said, well, Sussman's position was A, B, and C. Okay, well, Sussman has the right to remain silent. And Sussman's attorneys now are arguing that the revelation of his position on whatever this obscure issue was, was a violation of his right to remain silent. And it was prejudicial to the jury. So the judge, they asked for a mistrial and the judge said he's disinclined to offer the mistrial, but he'll take it under advisement or to approve the mistrial. He'll take it under advisement. Supposed to make the decision today. My guess is he's not getting a mistrial. But Dan, first of all, why, why is this important? Why should we even be following this thing? This is one of those minor process crimes. Yes, it's a felony lying to the FBI. Uh, The Justice Department, though, a couple of days ago called it a grave crime. No, it's not. It's not a grave crime when the sentencing guideline uh, for a guilty verdict is zero to six months. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think the grave crime aspect of this is that is is not necessarily the one thing that he did, but that he was part of Spreading this lie that's that the led crime. to Russia Gate. Yes. You know, and that is that's the conspiracy right there, the crime that, that we should be talking about. Yeah, I mean, this has been the this is the tree of the horrible fruit that we're now harvesting now, right? I mean, this hatred towards Russia and uh hysterical hatred towards Russia uh that has blossomed uh now, and not just against 
the Russian government, but against Russian people and athletes and musicians, et cetera, you know, of a kind I've never seen in my lifetime, even, you know, when the Soviet Union existed. And that, you know, that really flows from this Russiagate scandal, which many of us thought from the beginning was a lie. And this trial is is one more, you know, could expose one more uh, seam in, 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 in that lie. And I think that's what's important about this trial. Um, and that's why people should be following it and others like it. You know, it's it's clear that this thing was a hoax, you know, yeah. and and yet people are still carrying around this anger towards Russia from something that was always um, a lie. Well, it's that's it's funny that you say that because I see that, too. Here we are all this time after the, the Steele dossier was utterly discredited. And the mainstream media keeps feeding the same narrative that Russiagate was an actual thing, right? That, well, even if there was no secret server in Pennsylvania, uh, Trump was still with the Russians. Somehow. Somehow. Yeah. Even though the Alpha Bank connection didn't quite pan out, we know that Trump was in the pocket of the Russians. Mm -hmm. Somehow. Yeah. And it, it, none of it's true. Yeah. None of it has been proven. And so Dan's right. What I mean, should... remember the anticipation of the Mueller report? Oh, my and gosh. The cartoon, cartoons of Robert Mueller looking like a Chippendale dancer and that kind of stuff. And then, yes. of course, it comes out and there's nothing. Nothing. Brian really Becker, nothing there. Brian Becker on uh, Loud and Clear played a clip. Uh, it was a compendium of all the times in one show that... Uh, Rachel Maddow said um, Russia talking about the uh, the uh, steel dossier and it was in like 60 minutes it was like 93 times it was Russia 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 and then in the end no none of it was true yeah but no. we are left with the aftermath yes and we're left with this whole same sort of uh, misinformation disinformation apparatus that began to be constructed and now it's just sort of turned different yeah. places and people are going to forget where where it started you know and where exactly this sort of right. impetus came to to crack down you know we gotta we gotta and like you said the other day it's not like we're sitting here defending donald trump no that's not no, it at it's all donald trump yeah but you got to go where the evidence leads you and there's just simply no evidence that any of that was true there were enough reasons not to like donald trump Sure. Other than to believe that for one second he could possibly be a spy or that anyone would recruit someone like Donald Trump or I told you trust last him week, in any way. Yeah. I, I told you last week I, I went out for dinner with this uh, person who was a who was a DNC lawyer. And, and she told me with a completely straight face that she believed that Vladimir Putin called Donald Trump each morning and gave him his orders for the day. Totally straight face. I mean, so here we are. It's all this time you know, later. How do you have a conversation with someone who believes something that's just yeah, flat? Well, how do you even yeah. respond yeah. to something like yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. Needless to say, there was not a second date. <laughs> <laughs> so I also can I mention maybe I've Dan, I'd be interested in your take on this. Maybe I have like interpreted this all wrong. It just cracked me up. I mentioned it to John earlier this morning. Uh, there was a piece in Business Insider on uh, Fiona Hill. I yeah. think she's written a new book or what it was. Uh, Fiona Hill, who was a, a Russia expert in the Trump administration, I think in the Biden administration 
as well. And uh, she was the one who said she wanted to pull the fire uh, alarm at the Helsinki press conference because she was so disturbed by the the vibes there. Um, but she said she's got some new thing out where she's talking about the relationship between uh, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. It says Putin didn't like didn't like Trump because he had to keep explaining things to him, which whatever. Is this correct? Is this incorrect? I have no idea. What I think was funny was after that, she writes, that's why Putin decided to invade Ukraine under a, a Biden administration and not a Trump administration. It's because Biden's smart and he's in a, you know, he's a transatlanticist. He's the foreign policy president. And so Putin knew he wouldn't have to explain things to him over and over again. And I'm like, wow, man, you are really you're going to try to say it reflects well on Biden that it was under his administration that this decision was was taken. It just was very Nuts. it just cracked me up. It makes no sense, too, right? You, you think if he wanted to do the invasion, he would do it, you know, when he thought he had a dumb president, right? I mean, if that's right. what his view was. Um, and as you say, it's just a silly thing as if, as, you know, I, I hold it against Biden that this happened on his watch. I think that I don't know that it would have turned out differently if Trump were president. And I have to say that because Trump Again, ironically, even though he was claimed to be a stooge of Putin, the truth was he did a lot of things to inflame the situation mm -hmm. with Russia, and including backing out of some key nuclear deals yes. um, and selling arms to, to Ukraine. Um, but what we do know is that Biden was on deck when this invasion happened. He, It was to him that Putin appealed for some very – simple concessions, you know, that that Ukraine wouldn't be part of NATO, that Ukraine would stop attacking the Donbass and by that totally fell on deaf ears. And even once the invasion happened, apparently Putin was waiting for a call from Biden that never came to discuss what was happening. So Biden bears an, a, a huge responsibility for what's happened here. And he shouldn't be let off the hook. And again, this whatever she is saying makes absolutely no sense. And um, he gets nothing but blame and no credit mm -hmm. for what's happened. Mm -hmm. I also we have news that the Senate has just passed that 40 billion dollar aid bill for Ukraine. And I was just sort of skimming through it. Uh, the only thing I can see that's not going directly to weapons or military operations is uh, less than one of those 40 billions. 900 million for refugee assistance and 54 million for public health and medical support. And, and the payroll for the Ukrainian army. We're paying the payroll. Can you imagine? I was shocked when I read that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that $40 billion represents a huge proportion of Ukraine's entire, you know, gross national product. Oh, you're probably like right. More than sure. the defense budgets of many nations, yeah. I, as I understand yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and this is it's just a the huge latest supplement. Amount of money, it's disgusting. And meanwhile, we don't have baby formula. I mean, exactly, exactly. It proves once again the U.S. You know, is now a country that they cannot create but only destroy, and it's 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 depressing. Indeed. It is. Times have certainly changed. Hey, I want to wrap up this Sussman thing. You're an attorney. Um, you you must have encountered over the course of your career other attorneys who had gotten themselves into trouble of, of one sort or another. Um, what happens if Sussman is convicted? After all, you know, the feds win 98.2% of their cases, according to ProPublica. Let's say he uh, is uh, 
he is convicted. The sentencing guidelines are for no uh, prison time. But what? He loses his law license, does he not? He certainly could and should. Right. Because lying to a federal official certainly would be a violation of his legal ethics. Mm. And uh, yes, I think that he could lose his law license and therefore possibly his career. But somehow, why do I think he'll still end up being a consult- <laughs> high paid consultant to somebody? I think you're right. Hey, I'm sure that you saw this clip of George W. Bush making a fool of himself yesterday uh, during a speech in which he said that there was, quote, no justification for the illegal and unjustified invasion of Iraq. I mean, Ukraine, unquote. This slip was so Freudian. Yeah, we call it a Freudian slip. I mean, can you, you know, he. An inadvertent slip of the truth. I mean, it's an incredible thing. Incredible. And it shows a, a guilty conscience, which he should have. But that's kind of amazing. Well, that's kind of what I wanted to ask you. I, I wrote myself a note here. I, I said I don't really have a smart question to ask you so much as I'd like to hear your thoughts about how an utterly discredited warmonger like George W. Bush can be rehabilitated, especially by the Democrats. And now be taken seriously on an issue like the Ukraine war. How in the world did that happen? Yeah, although let's face it. I mean, we have a guy in office now, Joe Biden, who was the head of the uh, the Foreign Relations Committee yep. uh, when they were investigating whether there was mass uh, weapons of mass destruction to justify the world, the war. And Biden aided and abetted Bush's yes. attempt to go to war. Yes. You know, so the Democrats have their fingerprints all over this as much as the Republicans. And so it's not surprising that they would try to rehabilitate Bush because they were part of his crime. Mm-hmm. Absolutely true. We've got just a couple of minutes left. I want to ask you about the Philadelphia Phillies. Six former players are dead from brain cancer. This is statistically significant. David West died this week at the age of 57. And then big names. Darren Dalton died in 2017. John Vukovic died in 2007. Johnny Oates and Tug McGraw both died of brain cancer in 2004. Ken Brett, the brother of uh, George Brett, died in 2003. Five of the six were pitchers or catchers, which makes some people think that the cause might be the radar gun that's used to determine pitch speed. But others are speculating that perhaps it's the chemicals used to manufacture AstroTurf, which I found interesting, too. Wouldn't, don't other teams also well, use radar guns? And said, use Astro, yeah. Other teams haven't seen anything like and this. And AstroTurf, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're a baseball no, it's, fan it's and, and a Pennsylvanian. Well, what do you think? Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, you know, but, you know, correlation doesn't always prove causation. causation that's right. Be, you know, it could be... Uh, a strange coincidence. Uh, it could be maybe environmental issues in Philadelphia itself, though. Again, why catchers and pitchers? Um, obviously, it deserves. Let's put it this way: it deserves someone to look into it and investigate. Yeah. Because, you know, as you say, it's statistically significant. So maybe there is some cause that's unique to to them that that should be uh, found out. But I think ju- I think there's no way to know short yeah, of that. You that's know? right. I could see this taking years to investigate. Years. Could it be, uh, I hate to make light of this, could it be Philadelphia's toxic sports culture? 
<laughs> that's that's, that's as Spoken as a rival. Yeah, yeah. Spoken as someone who and just likes watching the Eagles lose. Uh, yeah, no. One one last question. You know, Dan is a Dan is an expert on Latin America, and he goes to Latin America all the time. He's personally acquainted with and friendly with the leadership of many of the countries in Latin America. Dan, I've got to get your your thoughts on on the prospect for. I'm going to go ahead and say warming relations between the United States and Venezuela. The U.S. isn't something of a pickle here where we actually need the Maduro government now and we need their oil production. Um, we we noted the other day, Michelle and I, that uh, that although the State Department yesterday called uh, Juan Guaido the legitimate president of uh, of Venezuela, a week earlier, the White House called him opposition leader Juan Guaido. Uh, what do you think about relations between the Maduro government and the White House right now? Do you see them improving, if only because yeah, we well, need them? Well, Biden just announced he's going to loosen sanctions against Venezuela. Yes. Uh, they have, as you, you know, know, they reached out to Maduro earlier in the year to talk about possibly buying oil from uh, Venezuela. Yes, I think that, look, Venezuela has been a, an important country to the U.S. for over 100 years, mostly because of the oil. Um, it's natural that those two countries have a trade relationship, if nothing else. Venezuela has always been open to that, whether it was under Chavez or Maduro. They were not the ones that ended that relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think the U.S. is going to decide to eat some crow, which it should, and so make too. you know, have, you know, make nice with Venezuela, which I see as a great thing, and it should happen. It's long overdue. There was no reason to treat them as a pariah. Uh, and and honestly, as someone who supports Venezuela, um, it will feel good when, you know, there's people back at the embassy in Venezuela who represent Maduro. And I think in the end, Maduro will win this battle of wits. I, I think so, too. I think Maduro's going to win. Well, we will leave it there. Thank you, Dan Kovalik, for joining us. Dan is a labor attorney, human rights activist and author. His latest book is called Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. You are listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come right back. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, getting into some domestic economic news, making some predictions, asking how sustainable uh, the S&P 500 sort of uh, sustainable good guys business list actually is, and taking a look at some new moves by China to protect itself from sanctions. Joining all of uh, joining us for all of this is Robert Hockett. He's Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a professor of public policy at Cornell University. He's a senior counsel at Westwood Capital, and he's a fellow of the Century Foundation. Robert Hockett, thank you for joining us again. Hey, Michelle. Hey, John. Great to be with you again. Welcome back. Let's talk about recession and the stock market. 
we we have more warnings of recession coming from big American financial institutions. I think uh, Moody's, Goldman Sachs. We have Ed Federal Reser- ex Federal Reserve chairs. Uh, And most of them seem to be pointing to interest rate hikes as the main cause of this potential coming contraction. And I wonder what your prediction is at this point. Yeah, I I think it's very difficult to predict that at the moment uh, for a couple of reasons, right? I mean, on the one hand, we do have um, the Fed and other central banks worldwide talking about raising rates to sort of combat, of course, spiking inflation. Uh, and there have also, there's also been some you know, pretty bad news from some fairly productive centers of the world, most notably China, of course. Um, and a slowdown in China is the kind of thing that could lead to a slowdown in the world uh, and hence um, uh, slowdown in various countries that are in the world, including the U.S. On the other hand, we do seem to have a, a growing or a sort of a dawning uh, appreciation Uh, on the part of various American lawmakers and the White House, that it really is time to sort of jumpstart and accelerate, even kind of turbocharge production here at home, partly uh, in recognition of the risks that attend the kind of global supply chains and outsourcing that we've been reliant on over the last 20 to 30 years, uh, and partly in recognition of the fact that, well, one way to counteract a constrictive monetary policy uh, is to take on a, a more expansionary uh, fiscal policy. And as long as that fiscal policy that is expansionary is actually growing production or increasing production in the economy, it will tend to have a counterinflationary effect because, of course, you're producing a lot more goods to absorb all that excess money. Now, my, you know, being kind of metabolically optimistic, as you guys know I am, I tend to think that that trend is going to continue and, in, and even accelerate. And insofar as it does, I think we're actually much more likely to evade or avoid uh, a recession, even with a tightening of Fed rates, uh, than otherwise. And so, yeah, this is this is something I wanted to ask if if we do, you know, if these indicators, if, if we keep seeing these warnings that a recession is coming, does this maybe help Biden pass some of his bigger sort of investment uh, items on his agenda? I think it really does, Michelle. And, and if you add this to the, the very interesting development yesterday, which was that President Biden uh, invoked the Defense Production Act for the second time in two years, um, that's another reason, I think, to think, I, I think, to to expect that there will be massive growth uh, on the on the real side of the economy. But again, growth in a manner that doesn't have to be inflationary, right? So imagine that we use the Defense Production Act to jumpstart and accelerate even sort of turbocharged production uh, of semiconductors, which are a critical input to virtually everything these days. And then we were to do the same with batteries and EVs. And then we were to do the, to do the same with solar panels, both for domestic use and for export. Well, you could imagine a very counterinflationary impact following on that. And it looks as though Congress is a little bit more willing to play ball with those kinds of things right now, precisely because of the inflationary dangers. And of course, because of critical shortages in particular areas that people can't really tolerate, notably, of course, lately, uh, baby formula. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the big question, since this is going to be a political matter, right? Is there mm-hmm. is there going to be the political will to do it? Or, you, you know, just sort of turn and look at the Fed and go, I don't know, what are you guys going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Which is what we've done for 30 years. Right. And it was a terrible idea, right? Right. Can I ask how how typical it is to have the economy kind of feel like it's all over the place, right? Because 
You, you have consumer spending remaining strong. You have a high mm-hmm. employment relatively. You have a labor market that favors workers as much as it ever does in the U.S. It's a it's a tight labor market. And yet you mm-hmm. also have the stock market really swinging around, but, uh, you know, t- uh, tending to just make these big drops and then recover a bit and then have another big drop. And so I wonder if this is a normal pattern heading into a slowdown and the the people who are investing are sort of, you know, seeing the writing on the wall ahead of some of these other indicators, or if we are in an unusual economic moment right now. Yeah, I think that's that's a really insightful observation, as, as always, Michelle. And I think, you know, basically it is a very unusual set of indicators, um, but that's in turn, I think, because it's a very unusual set of circumstances that are prevailing in the world right now. There is, of course, the fact that we're kind of coming off of a major uh, pandemic, which is, you know, occasionally spiking again, in, including right now here in the U.S., You've also got a major war underway that uh, at least nominally threatens or at least can appear to um, sort of um, inflict a certain degree of uncertainty on global energy markets and global commodity, notably food and you know, grain in particular uh, markets. You've got um, you know, a strange growth of um, fascist movements and domestic terrorism from the right happening in the U.S. You've meanwhile got lots of growth underway thanks to the stimulus that was um, uh, enacted both during the waning days of the Trump administration and the early days of the Biden administration. All of this stuff together, you know, all of it combined, makes for a real mixed bag of, of, of impulses or forces and I think that the, the the sort of mixed bag of indicators is simply reflective of that. Yeah, and it's I guess it's sort of taking a look at all of them and deciding which ones to weight more than others. I also yeah. I got a little kick out of this Wall Street Journal story today on uh, investor displeasure with executive pay, which is maybe <laughs> you know maybe doesn't matter, maybe is a sign of some political winds shifting a little bit. Um, but I didn't know anything about this. Right. But apparently, uh, usually when you have a sort of earnings call and you talk about with your major investors about what you're going to pay your executives, uh, companies get 90 support on these. Uh, or, sorry. It's unusual for companies to get less than 90 percent support for whatever they propose to pay their executives. And these are pay packages uh, right now with a median salary of about 14 million dollars a year. But recently, uh, investors that own two thirds of shares of Intel and J.P. Morgan Chase did not support the executive pay plans they were presented with. And only about half of Coca-Cola investors uh, supported theirs. And so I'm wondering if this is, you know, if this is a sense of moral outrage at how much these executives are getting paid compared to, you know, the, the workers at the lowest levels of these um, companies, or, or is this just investors wanting a bigger return and punishing the people in front of them? Well, I think, you know, it's funny. I think there, there's probably a touch of moral outrage, but in this particular realm, Moral outrage is always a lot easier uh, to sort of feel if your pocketbook is also uh, experiencing a kind of outrage. Right. And and in, in, in recent weeks, of course, as you know, equities have been taking a hit, right? The stock market as a whole has been taking a hit. Uh, and so it's easy to imagine that some of these shareholders, you know, see their portfolios dropping in value at about the same time that the executives are looking for uh, larger pay packages. And they're thinking, well, you know, WTF, you know, why, 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 why now? That 
would be that's one possible, I think, sort of short term explanation. So you got a kind of moral outrage combining with a sense of, you know, being cheated by your own uh, executives. Um, a, a slightly longer term um, element that might also be playing a role here, and that might be that, you know, it's hard to miss the headlines these days. That on the one hand, inflation is on the rise, and on the other hand. Corporate profits and corporate share buybacks are at all-time record highs, um, and some of the savvier shareholders might be thinking, you know, there might be some coming scrutiny um, of executive pay and other elements that uh, feed into inflation. You know, apart from labor costs, which always get the blame, of course, in the right-wing press. Um, and so maybe some folk are sort of saying, well, maybe better not to be quite as as vulgar about this as uh. you guys are being now that you're drawing scrutiny from people like Liz. Warren and Bernie Sanders and others. So it's more of a, you know what, this might start to really make us look bad rather than, exactly. hey, I have it. I think it's unethical that you are getting $10 million a year and you're paying your, you know, your workers $10 an hour. Yeah. The one thing worse than being unethical, I think, for some of these folk is looking unethical. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I did think it was funny. I mean, you know, it's, it's a, I don't I'm not going to give it a lot of importance, but it's it's still sort of nice <laughs> to see. At least they felt uncomfortable yeah. for a minute. Um, it's, yeah, it's gratifying in a sense, right? Yes. <laughs> we'll see what we can get. <laughs> yes. And also speaking of sort of gratifying and we'll see what happens. I, I enjoyed seeing Amazon Labor Union President Chris Smalls uh, tweet at Elon. He didn't tweet at Elon Musk, but he said, hey, we're still organizing. He was he was commenting on I think he was he was saying this is why Jeff Bezos is is tweeting at Joe Biden about how, you know, you shouldn't conflate taxing big corporations with combating inflation. Uh, but he said also, hey, Elon Musk, we're coming, we're coming for you. And so then I kind of went to see if Elon Musk had, had responded in any way. And I came to this story about Tesla being dumped from the S&P ESG index, which is the S&P's uh, index that supposedly uses environmental, social and governmental data to recommend good companies and sustainable companies. Uh, mm -hmm. This just happened yesterday, the ESG or uh, this week, the ESG said the change was because of Tesla's lack of a low carbon strategy. It uh, codes of business conduct that it found wanting uh, instances mm -hmm. of racism at his factories, poor working conditions at one factory, and also how the company has handled reports and investigations into autopilot crashes. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I I do not think Tesla is going to save the environment. I think Tesla sort of represents uh, a new and maybe broader scale and effective way of, of using carbon credits and sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm not I'm not wounded at seeing Tesla's reputation dented. But it's also interesting that the list contains Exxon. Bank of America, Amazon, mm -hmm. Walmart. And so, you know, I'm not going to defend Tesla, but I think, uh, oh, OK, so they're worse. They're worse than Exxon. <laughs> they're, they're worse than Bank of America. So I just wonder, yeah. what, what do you make of this this uh, demotion for Tesla and also this list in general? Yeah, I guess a couple of thoughts on that. Um, uh, I think, Michelle, so I think on the one hand, the list itself, you know, in general, as you just put it, is best looked at kind of skeptically, right? There's a tendency, for one thing, there's a kind of capitalization on 
uh, a growing interest in, in environmental and social responsibility. And, and one way to kind of ride that wave a little bit with, uh, you know, sort of PR points is to put a list like that together and then to, you know, do a few superficial things to get a favorable mention uh, on that list. And so we should always take it with a bit of a grain of salt and maybe listen more to the, the Sierra Club or the ACLU or the, you know, the various other actual social justice groups and how they rate these firms rather than looking at something put together by S&P, which is, in effect, one of those firms. That being said, I'm not altogether surprised that Tesla is doing even worse than Exxon and others on that list at the moment, um, given uh, Mr. Musk's apparent personal style when it comes to running an operation uh, and his personal style sort of outside of the operation. Right? He sometimes seems to me like a a kind of drunken plantation owner with ADD or ADHD or something. He's constantly flitting from one thing to another. There are all, always reports coming um, from inside Tesla about various forms of abuse that are taking place within the firm. We then see him, of course, um, promising to get Trump back on Twitter and then the next moment um, trying to back out of the Twitter deal altogether. The man is completely erratic and does seem to have 19th century views um, as to how employees of firms should be treated. Um, and so, you know, given all of that and given the fact that all of those things are relevant to an ESG rating, uh, it's not to me all that terribly surprising, right? Any more than it would be surprising if Peter Thiel uh, had a company that got a bad rating or was ejected from a list or what have you. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it is it is gratifying to see that there's a tendency to go, oh, see, this this company is creating a product that is somehow slightly better than a previous product. So everything about it must be good and we can, <laughs> you know, consume our way out of this hole. So to have at least yeah. one example of scrutiny of that and say, eh, you know, actually, just because you're making electric cars doesn't necessarily mean that you are uh, good for the environment, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. I'll take that. Sure. That's fine. I'll yeah, take it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I have uh, one last story that kind of goes back to uh, a topic that we have spoken about on this show before, and that's like a, a possible trend toward e global economic uh, segregation. Uh, and mm -hmm. that is this Wall Street Journal report from this morning, uh, citing anonymous sources, uh, but it reports that China's Communist Party is going to try to enforce a, a ban on ownership of high value uh, assets abroad. So it's going to block promotions for senior officials whose spouses or children hold significant assets overseas. And the idea is to apparently to begin to reduce the vulnerability of the country's leadership to sanctions like the ones imposed on Russia. Uh, this mm -hmm. was apparently uh, this directive was issued in March. Uh, and it prevents the spouses and children of ministerial level officials from holding directly or indirectly real estate abroad or shares in entities registered overseas. And so I wonder, is this, you know, is this really most important domestically for China, for their, you know, their political situation? Or is this actually, I don't know, part of a larger trend that we should be paying attention to? Because uh, I, I don't have any problem with rich people not being allowed to buy up foreign real estate. Uh, but I wonder if you are seeing it as part of part of moves toward economic segregation. And, you know, we've talked to guests who say it's not even really possible. Like you can't cut China out of the global economy. But China, at least, is is appears to be preparing for uh, possible sanctions like the sort of personal ones that uh, Russian leadership are under right now. Yeah, I think it's both domestically significant and globally significant, Michelle. And I think that um, 
any of your guests who say that it's not possible to, quote unquote, cut China out are on the one hand correct, but on the other hand, maybe talking about a kind of straw man. I don't think that anybody's actually talking about a complete radical segregation or complete separation of the Chinese economy from the American economy, from the European economy and so forth. But there is, I think, considerable movement on, you know, in, in, in all of these quarters uh, toward uh, a somewhat more casual dating relationship, you might say, rather than uh, kind of monogamous or, or bigamous marriages. Uh, in other words, the synergy that has uh, sort of come into being over the last 20 to 30 years between the Chinese and American economies, which has led some people to refer to the two countries together as Chimerica from time to time, uh, and similar synergies between the Chinese economy and the European um, are, I think, going to be significantly diminished uh, in the coming uh, years. And I think that's probably actually good for all parties. You do have to have, to some extent, a certain amount of trade across borders. Um, but when you get to the point where entire industries within particular domestic economies are hollowed out or just outsourced elsewhere to the point where then countries become no longer self-sufficient with respect to certain essentials, like, for example, baby formula or microprocessors in the U.S. case or what have you, um, that tends to become an unhealthy relationship because it leads to resentments, right, between peoples in the various countries involved. And so a somewhat more arm's length set of relationships, I think, among the world's economies is probably just going to end up being healthier, both for those domestic economies themselves and for the relations between the countries that have or the nation states that have jurisdiction uh, over those economies. A final point here is that one of the impetuses, of course, for this, as you know, is the ways in which global supply chains have been shown to be vulnerable by COVID itself. And then, of course, the U.S.'s use of its kind of hegemony over the global monetary and financial system has simply sort of reinforced that particular message, in this case, to China, right? So you might say Americans kind of learned about the fragility of global supply chains and thus began to look a little bit more skeptically at China trade. China is now experiencing or watching firsthand what the U.S. is using its um, monetary hegemony to do and is accordingly having kind of similar thoughts. And so I think everybody is now thinking, yeah, maybe we should also we should be able to sort of date other people, so to speak, and also kind of learn how to enjoy staying at home on our own on Friday nights sometimes rather than being like <laughs> we always have to be out, you know, uh, out dining at a fine restaurant with our uh, our our, our you know, kind of uh, uh, monogamous girlfriend or, or spouse or boyfriend or what have you. No, oh, yeah, just an economic uh, Great British Bake Off and chill on Friday nights. <laughs> exactly right, and and again, that might just be healthier, right? I mean, I think that the uh, there was a, a bit of over enthusiasm, you might say, when it came to the kind of Clintonian followed by the Bushian sort of um, no holds barred globalization, and and of course, as you know, right, working class folk uh, in the, both the European economies and the American economy, not to not to mention the BRICS, have have, have suffered in significant ways, and so a, a, a kind of a, a certain degree of restoration of balanced economies within all of the world's individual economies is probably a good idea, right? Um, it doesn't mean that you have to go to smooth holly tariffs of the 1930s variety or beggar thy neighbor competitions uh, in trade wars and currency wars and so forth. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to go to one extreme or the other. There is a middle ground here, it seems to me, that would be sensible and better for everybody and better for long-term relations, um, including military relations. Mm -hmm. Robert, let me ask you one more quick question going back to the uh, conversation about what could be done on inflation. If if mm -hmm. the Biden administration 
you know, in your optimistic take, does uh, decide to uh, to use inflation as as a way to say, hey, here's here's justification for this sweeping investment that I that I want to make that I've been pushing for. <laughs> You've talked about how you, you think that the administration is not uh, messaging about inflation, right? Right. About tying it to taxation has not really been very useful. It's not really what's going on. So what would you like, you know, to, to hear him saying about, you know, connecting inflation to this investment that you think would really Mm -hmm. signal that he is pushing forward and that it does have some legs. I'd like to hear him say a couple of things and he can, he can pivot this right off of his invocation yesterday of the defense production act. So what he should say, I think, is that there's been an unfortunate tendency uh, in the press and in popular discussion of inflation to look solely at the monetary piece of it, right? In effect, they're all channeling Milton Friedman, who, as you know, sort of famously said, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Well, as it happens, that particular quip of his is always and everywhere only a half-truth at best. Um, And the reason for that is, as we've talked about before, before, inflation is a relation, right? If I can use that mnemonic, that kind of cheesy rhyme, inflation is a relation. It's a relation between the money supply on the one hand and goods and services supplies on the other hand. The problem right now is that in 2020, um, we handled the demand side of the crisis very well by pumping money into the economy, but we didn't handle the, the, the supply side. We didn't sort of recognize officially that there was going to be significant curtailment, both of production and of shipping, right? Sort of effective shipping of what was produced elsewhere. And so we were bound at some point to hit a point where there would be, quote unquote, too much money chasing too few goods. So what Biden should do is remind everybody now that inflation is a relation, that the best way to take care of it right now in a way that doesn't bring on a recession and mass unemployment again is to jumpstart and again, turbocharge production. And then to note that the public sector has a critical role to play in doing that, that cutting taxes and that kind of stuff is nonsense when it comes to boosting production in the way that we need to do, because in effect, we face massive coordination and collective action challenges to a kind of coherent, well-coordinated national mobilization of productive capacity. And the best analogy for him to look to is the way we mobilized for war production in the Second World War. What we should do is say, look, we're facing right now something that is kind of a moral equivalent of war, but thankfully is not itself literally war. And we have to employ the mechanisms that the Roosevelt administration did that combined basically public-private coordination and, 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 again, collaboration in massively levering up the capacity of the economy to produce stuff. But unlike World War II, where it was producing warplanes and ships and guns and munitions and so forth, this time we could be massively producing all of what we need to be producing to greenify the economy, to reverse climate change to bring better health outcomes to people, to bring back good, high-paying manufacturing-style jobs to people, all of that kind of thing, right? A World War II-scale mobilization, but not for war against uh, other countries, but for war against climate change, uh, declining health outcomes, um, declining wages and, and, and salaries over the long term. That's what he ought to be pushing, it seems to me. Yeah, mobilize, is- mobilize for a war on poverty. I would love to see it. We will we'll watch and see if he if he's listening, if he takes your cue. That was law of public policy professor Robert Hockett. Robert, as always, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much, Michelle. And thanks again, John. Talk to you guys Good soon. to talk to you.
We're going to just keep going and, and uh, slide in a few last headlines here, John. I don't know if you want to talk about that horrible story that I sent you a, a minute ago. Wow. I was thinking maybe we should talk about that. Incredible uh, story. Uh, just it's all an awful story of just yet another completely unnecessary use of police violence that has resulted in horrifying injuries. Maybe the death of this man. I mean, I don't know. He's, he's absolutely not out of the woods yet. It's a 26 year old uh, man on a on a dirt bike. And uh, I will not pretend that I'm uh, deeply familiar with the details. I just saw it come across my feed. But he was tackled at a gas station by a police officer. I think it seems to be a case of mistaken identity. I'm not positive about that. It, it is. Yeah. Here's what happened. Earlier in the day, he and a group of other dirt bike riders uh, were riding around. This county in Florida has a zero tolerance policy for dirt bikes. Okay, And great. <laughs> so someone called 911 and said, somebody on a dirt bike uh, pulled a gun on me. Right. It wasn't this guy. Yeah. But the police saw him riding the dirt bike. He was on his way home. He was a mile from home, decided to stop at a gas station to fill up before he went the rest of the way home. Mm -hmm. uh, the cop tackled him while he was filling his dirt bike up. And when the cop tackled him, gas spilled, the dirt bike uh, fell over, and this guy got gas all over him. Another police officer drove up, and the first police officer pulled out a taser, shot the poor guy with the taser, the spark from the taser. And they're both engulfed in flames. Both of them. Yeah. Just so stupid. 75% of his body is covered with third degree burns. Yeah. He's a, in degree. a medically induced coma. It's, yes. I mean, it's just awful. It's an awful injury to have. It's Absolutely an awful, and, and just terrible. to have been inflicted on someone who's, you know, violently, <laughs> violently tries to take down this, this person who is in, innocent of anything. Yeah. And then another cop comes along and decides to just add literally, well, throw a, throw a match on the whole situation. A, a it's just worst awful. case scenario should have been a ticket for riding a, a, a vehicle that's not roadworthy. Right. 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 That should have been the ticket not yeah. to explode the guy in a fireball. No, it's it's outrageous. The other story that has been uh, on my mind a little bit, and I don't know if we'll get into it more later in the show, but I was talking to you yesterday about this a, a famous woman in the climbing and bouldering community, yes. Shauna Coxie, who, uh, you know, is a she went to the Olympics. She's she's a, you know, one of the world's best uh, boulderers. She's yes. also pregnant. And on her Instagram account, she's been sharing pictures of her as she, you know, get, gets more and more visibly pregnant, uh, climbing boulders, mostly in the gym, but also outside. And of course, this is a sport where you sometimes have to jump. You, there's a lot of straining. Sometimes you fall down. You know, certainly right. there's always the risk of falling down. I fall down much more than Shauna Coxie falls down, but that's... That's fine. Um, and The Guardian the other day had a story about the reaction that she is getting to, you know, being uh, very pregnant. I think there's a picture of her on her due date climbing a boulder. Um, she hasn't given birth yet, as far as I know. But the reaction she's getting to it, to, you know, the risk that she is taking mm -hmm. in, in continuing to do this sport. And I don't really have strong thought. You know, I think I'm, I'm sure she's doing it with with under in consultation with her doctor and her husband and also herself and her life. Right. And so I don't really have strong thoughts about what she should be doing. Uh, but I it just, again, raises the issue of what do we consider an acceptable risk and what do we consider right. an unacceptable risk? And what is something that is maybe 
prosecutable. Right. Uh, you know, and, and what is it? We talked on the show now probably a year or so ago about efforts to prosecute women mm-hmm. for miscarriages. Mm-hmm. And it's almost always it's about uh, drug use. Yes. And at the time we said, what about what about running a marathon? Mm-hmm. What about engaging in strenuous exercises? Yesterday, so here you, you and have I a, said, what about going to a concert where it's really loud? Yeah. Yeah. And so you have a case of this, uh, you know, relatively famous sort of niche famous white woman who is doing something that poses some risk. Uh, to her fetus. I'm not going to speculate as to how much. Uh, And, you know, getting a little bit of uh, pushback for it, but not facing prosecution or questions from the police. Just, you know, it's interesting to to question what categories we put things into sometimes. Mm -hmm. That's all we got for today. Thanks to all of our guests and our engineers and producers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 